Welcome to Eat, Sleep, Wine, Repeat, a podcast for all you wine lovers who, if you're like me, just cannot get enough of the good stuff. I'm Yanina Doyle, your host, brand ambassador, wine educator, and sommelier. So stick with me as we dive deeper into this ever-evolving, wonderful world of wine. And wherever you are listening to this, cheers to you. Hello, wine friends, and welcome back to another episode. Now, today I have Sam Povey on the podcast. He is a WSET wine educator teaching at the London Bermondsey School. He does wine tastings in restaurants and hosts private events. In fact, this year he was named one of Harper's 30 under 30 for his work educating consumers and those in the trade. And I recently discovered him myself on Instagram. You can follow him at sampovey.wine, telling weird and wonderful wine stories. He's fascinating to listen to. So in fact, as an example, when we think of Burgundy, we think of the red grape variety Pinot Noir. That's what it's famous for. But I learned from Sam himself that back in the 1300s, it was one of the powerful dukes of this state wanted to create a scarcity of wine to make more money, and in fact banned the much higher yielding, more reliable, easier to grow grape variety Gamay, which was at that time the focused grape variety of Burgundy. But the story that I am very much invested in is his personal journey to trade an everyday supermarket wine up to the most expensive wine in the world. And so we are going to be talking on this episode about his trades so far. And of course, they continue to get more and more premium. So you'll learn about the story and history of Egri Bikava, a really full-bodied red wine from Hungary, one of the top Pinot Noir producers from New Zealand, a small little project in Bordeaux made by the producer of Le Pan in Pomerol, and then there will be several other wines that you will learn about. So I know you're going to find this episode interesting. You will find it educational, and I just hope as well you find it inspiring. So if you haven't poured yourself a glass of wine already, do it now. And let's go over to Sam and his story. Okay, Sam, I just, should I say, discovered you? I found you on Instagram and you captivated me because you speak about wine far better than me. It's true. Thank you very much. True fact. And so before we get into what is one of the best wine stories I think ever created, I want you to tell me how you even got into wine and how you ended up becoming a wine educator. Was there the moment? One wine? What happened? <laughs> I mean, I, I wish I could say it was it was just one moment. So I, I've been working as a wine educator now for about two and a bit years. And before that, you know, working in retail. But wine has been an interest of mine um, going back for about a decade now. And, you know, if, if I were to point to sort of any one kind of instance, there was definitely the first sort of the, I remember very distinctly the first time I ever tried, to my knowledge anyway, tried Riesling. <laughs> to your um, knowledge. Was, <laughs> to my knowledge, at least, yes. And it was at a wine tasting university. And basically, I'd been convinced to go along because my friend said that there would be free 
or very, very heavily subsidized alcohol. You're not the only person that I've had on this podcast <laughs> that has basically the exact same story. Yay for university free or very cheap wine events. Yes. So, uh, you know, shout out to the LSE Student Union Backers Society. <laughs> You're doing great work. And we had this incredibly posh man leading the tasting. He was wearing a double-breasted jacket. Oh, he was really looking the part. Oh yeah, absolutely. You know, all of, all of the stereotypes. Um, but he was lovely and enthusiastic and introduced this wine, said, was talking about it. And I obviously didn't recognize the term Riesling at the time at all. So he just said words none of which had any resonance with me whatsoever. But he did say that the wine that sort of um, a couple of helpers were pouring smelled like petrol. And I was at the back of the room, so I had to wait a little bit at the time. And, and sort of while I'm waiting for this petroly liquid to be poured into my glass, you're kind of thinking, number one, obviously it doesn't smell like petrol because it's made of grapes. So it doesn't, <laughs> because that's not possible. And secondly, even if it did, why would that be a, an attractive quality for you to, <laughs> to be shouting about and then it came around and it was poured in my glass and it, it did it smelled like petrol and that was that was a real yeah I guess I don't know eureka moment but it was it was one that definitely raised quite a few questions yeah and I suppose I've now spent the last you know five years of my career trying to answer a lot of those for myself um, and I think as is the case with lots of wine people as soon as you answer a couple of questions more questions spring up and, and you're just you're sort of playing whack-a-mole the whole time down and, the yeah, rabbit now, hole now I'm here <laughs> now you're exactly. here oh dear me okay so well now you're here and I mean we're cutting obviously quite a few years out but you're teaching for the WSET wine school actually in Bermondsey that's where I did my level two three and four I did my diploma there so yeah what are you doing are you doing specific levels there yeah well I mean firstly I I also studied all of my my levels there as well so I'm working there I've been there just over a year now and it's beginning to get more normal. But at first it was very, very strange um, to be <laughs> standing to be up working. Yeah, to be on the other side of the classroom, uh, and yeah. but also working with a lot of the teachers who instructed me when I was doing my level two and level three. And then I actually joined and I hadn't quite finished my level four at that time. So that was that was very strange at first, but it, it's wonderful. Having worked in wine retail, when you learn about wine, you want to talk to people about it. You want to share your knowledge. But most people go into a wine shop and they just want a bottle of wine and they want to get out of there. Fairly <laughs> oh, don't tell me that. It's not true. It's not true. Yeah, I know. I know. And, you know, you always have to kind of funnel your knowledge and go into, no, this is this is a nice bottle of red wine for £10. And then mm -hmm. thank you very much. And then they'll leave. So being able to sort of stand up in front of a class of 20 or so people who are all not only interested, but they've paid you money to, <laughs> to, to be there, to listen to you talk about wine is a real privilege because you can have those kind of in-depth conversations that you wouldn't be able to otherwise. So I teach wine. I mainly teach level one and two and uh, beginning to teach a little bit of three now as well. Nice. So those conversations are becoming even more in depth, which is fantastic, but it's, it's been wonderful. And not only teaching the courses, but we hold lots of amazing events as well, which allow us to go a little bit more off-piste and being able to do, you know, earlier last year, I did a three, earlier this year, sorry, I did a three-part tasting series just on the history of wine itself. Oh, wow. That's interesting. Yeah. And I don't know anywhere else in the world, maybe, where you can say, do you want to come to a tasting about the history of wine? And people go, yeah, absolutely. 
So presumably, was there some wines from Georgia in there? What did they show in that yes. historic taste? Yeah, yeah. So we we start we did some wine from from Georgia and Armenia. I think probably the most interesting wine that I showed over the course of the three tastings was I tried to recreate a Roman style wine. What is a Roman style wine? So it's one obviously they you know they they wrote down a lot and that included what they used to eat and drink and, and uh-huh. it was basically it was it was almost an aromatized wine so I took some sort of fairly kind of clapped out white wine that was a bit past its best because mm-hmm. to be honest it probably would have been in pretty bad quality and <laughs> we added honey and okay. some herbs some aromatics and uh, a good amount of water as well because it was watered down but the of thing course, that, yes. Mm. Right, so because they they were drinking quite a lot, but actually it was not very alcoholic by our standards anyway. But the weirdest thing of all is that when they did water it down, they sometimes used seawater. No, did they? Yeah, yeah. So what we did is is rather than sort of chuck a load of, of salt in there and, and and let people sort of hope for the best, really, <laughs> uh, I just put some put some salt water on the side and let people kind of um, you know adjust the saltiness themselves. And do you know what? In- Choose their fate. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. But you know, in, in small quantities, it is it is quite nice. And you know, wine people go on and on about salinity in their wines and so on. Well, I mean, this this actually had salinity, um, and it, it kind of works. That's really interesting because you know, I very often say to people who are just getting into wine, "Oh, you want to understand acidity? Bite into a lemon." feel your mouth watering. Okay, now that's super high acidity. If you want to taste a body, you know, you get your water, you get some full fat milk, you get some cream. That's your light, medium, full body. You know, so you talk about these different things. I have never thought about, potentially, I don't know, when we do taste a little bit of salinity in wine and you say to people as well, "Mm, it's got this saline edge, just like petrol. Uh, why do you want to drink a wine that tastes salty? But actually, I wonder, that could be quite an interesting way, just dropping in a little bit, drinking a normal water compared to drinking one with just a little bit of salt. Because it would what that would probably do as well is it's going to round out the wine a little bit. It's just going to, ch- you know, I don't know. It's not going to be horrible. That could be a yeah. really interesting way. I mean, I, I, su- I suppose the issue is when people say a wine is saline, they don't really mean it's salty. And, it's mineral, you know, isn't it? Well, th- but there, yeah. there is, I mean, this is the problem. That's the conversation. What is minerality? And uh, what are you, tra- but there is, there is that thing with the saltiness of minerality where it kind of makes your mouth water and it's good. I don't know. It's that's yeah. What's your interpretation? <laughs> Do we have an hour for this? Yeah, I think salinity and minerality is definitely a, a vexed question, I think would be fair. So should we should we skip over Move on. That? Um, and, and that will be for an episode for another day. So, okay, because I know you have a million stories, but as we said, for another day, let's get to the wine story. Now, I was telling somebody about what you have created. <laughs> and they said to me, do you know what? This is a bit like the guy in the... 80s, I don't know if it was the 80s, 90s, whatever, it doesn't matter, the decade, who decided he wanted to swap a box of matches for a house. Is this the story that inspired you? So I am part of the social media generation. And depending on the age of the listeners, there might be some some rolling of eyes right now. But I was made aware of this kind of project. Well, not this one you've referred to specifically, but there was a, a TikToker in 2020 called Demi Skipper who okay. lives in San Francisco, and she traded her way from a bobby pin to a house. But 
Oh, so it very much sounds like this. Her, that was a modern interpretation of what your fella did in the in the 1980s. Yeah, my fella, my fella. Yeah, okay. So, I, well, <laughs> I can't imagine only one person has ever done this. So, for everybody listening, and for anybody who has not been following Sam on his journey, and by the way, so it, what is your Instagram account so they can follow you now if they're not? Very simple. It's Sam Povey dot wine. So P O V E Y dot wine. Right. Perfect. So you decided one day you woke up and said, I have a bottle of yellowtail Shiraz, right? Is it Shiraz? Yeah, absolutely. It was the, the classic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which the, many people are drinking. How much did it cost you, this bottle? I, do you know what? It, well, you see, it depends if you get it on club card prices. <laughs> Tesco's but club. I would believe it's around <laughs> about £6.50. Yeah, 50. okay. Yeah, right, roughly. <laughs> so, that, so just in case anybody has never heard of Yeltel Shiraz, this is one of the big brands. It's a very affordable wine. It's probably one of the most drunk wines, is it not? Certainly in the UK, I'm sure, in around the world. And you decided it is, it, in its own way, it's an iconic wine. And is that why you chose this wine to start your journey? I think the you know the reason I chose Yellowtail Shiraz, it is an iconic wine, but it, it's it's a wine that I had a very bad experience with. Because there was, it was once put into a blind tasting that I was oh, doing. No. <laughs> and I'll get my excuses out of the way. And I was at the end of the day, I was tired, et cetera, et cetera. But I think I guessed that it was a Chateau Neuf de Pape. Oh, wow. It's, okay. Not so it's my the bad, So the bad experience is that you felt slightly embarrassed that your palate had let you down. Oh, a definitely. Bit. Absolutely. And I think if every wine professional is being honest, we always have these absolute clangers of sort of tastings from time to time but that one was particularly humbling and it is the classic and when we see this when we do blind tastings at the school all of the time if people they smell a wine that is very very ripe and very very rich and you don't think critically about the quality of those flavors and how sort of well defined they are and and the depth of the depth of flavor and the concentration of those flavors it's very easy to say oh this is obviously a high quality wine even though it of course isn't so it caught me off guard. And ever since then, it's had a special place in my mind. Or oh, it's haunted you. Yes, definitely. definitely Basically. Absolutely. I think it is worth saying as well, you know, you have some of the best tasters in the world. However, they have done experiments with people and they have slipped in really entry-level wines into things or and they've manipulated people's minds, telling everybody it's either going to be a certain price bracket or led people to believe that they're drinking something of high quality and our emotions we are led by many factors not just the very simple analytical palate you know nose sensory there's so much more to it and many many a good taster will if they think they're drinking something good is that because they don't want to feel embarrassed to say something that they think is really good doesn't taste very good whatever we can brainwash ourselves before we've even tasted something and that's the intriguing world of, of yeah, tasting are, wine, is it not? Deeply, deeply fallible and very suggestible. <laughs> yeah. Never trust a human. No, basically. It's a valid point. They've done tests on people's memory. And basically what we think is the truth very often is not the truth. They have asked different people and to describe certain like world massive events. And they said, yeah, I saw this, I saw that. And they're like, that's actually not possible because scientifically the wind would have gone this way. It actually didn't happen in that town. It happened in that town. So you wouldn't have been anywhere near it. And we can't be trusted. Sorry, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> so 
So what I have not said is what is your journey? So we've started with your very iconic nightmare of a wine that is drunk by many, and you have decided that you want to swap this wine to literally the most prestigious, one of the most iconic, one of the most expensive wines of the world, which is... So it is, so many people know it, of course, as DRC or Domaine Romani Conti. De la Romani Conti, I think. It is de la. I'm being careful. Yes, and exactly. And I don't ever say that de la, but you're correct. <laughs> <laughs> um, so often off, off the de la, and I think the reason again is I the first video that I did, I said, I would like to try a bottle of Domaine Romani Conti, la Romani Conti, which is completely incorrect. It's Domaine de la Romani Conti. And then... Well, we'll talk about the vineyard maybe in a little bit, but yeah, it's it's a wine it's a wine producer that is iconic in a slightly different way from Yellowtail Shiraz. I think it might be fair to fair to say. I'll be honest, I have tasted Yellowtail Shiraz many years ago. I have never tasted any DRC wines, so I mean, one would assume that they are a little just the just the price difference alone would suggest that they're probably a little bit different in quality. I would hope. <laughs> that if you put a glass of Yellowtail Shiraz and a glass of any of DRC's wines next to each other, I, I would hope that we would be able to tell the difference. But the reality is that as with you and as with, I think, most people in the wine industry, really, I have never tried it. I've never tried any of their wines whatsoever. And the reason is because, number one, they're available in such small quantities. But number two, in particular, they are incredibly expensive. Yeah. And... There is absolutely no way that most people, whether or not you live work in the wine industry or not, would be able to afford a bottle. So taking sort of inspiration from these, these bobby pin to house match box to house trades, I thought I would try and do the same thing, but for, but for wine. And this is, this is the wine equivalent of bobby pin to house, uh, Yellowtail Shiraz to Domaine de la Romani Conti. I love it. Now, within their portfolio they of course by the way everyone this is burgundy we are in burgundy yes, now yes in sorry, france. We, we we assume that everyone will know so this is burgundy in france right in the north we have eight vineyards and they release eight wines so are you after their very top wine the romani conti is is this you want the considered the best the, wine the of iconic theirs? wine yeah. Yeah. So for those of you that maybe don't know a little bit of the of the background about, I think we can call it DRC now. Yes, we can. We can yeah. Yes. Excellent. The winery has a very long history. Its origins go back to the 1200s. And as with many of Burgundy's most famous vineyards back, they were, you know, first uh, or, or planted or tended by monks, usually sort of Cistercian sort of monks. And it's a storied vineyard. It at one point was the subject of a bidding war between the mistress of King Louis the 15th that was Madame Pompadour and the Prince of Conti and Prince of Conti won the bidding war and added his name Conti to the Romany bit it was expropriated under after the revolution then was owned and expanded by a Napoleonic general and it's always if you go all the way back because you know records of the sale of Burgundian wine have been kept for hundreds of years. We know that it's always been very expensive. It used, you're going back to the 1700s, it was sold at sort of six to seven times the price of Claude de Vosges, which is another Grand Cru vineyard, not terribly far away from the sort of Romany area. 
So it has this, it has this kind of storied character that makes it so iconic and makes it so sought after. And you're right. So they, they produce wine from these, these different vineyards. All of them are Grand Cru vineyards. So the very kind of pinnacle already of what is produced in Burgundy and the sort of the lesser of the wines start at around 2000 pounds a bottle yeah. roughly. So this, so this would be the Coton. That one I know is the the lowest. So yeah, yeah anyone. Yeah, the, you... the everyday, the everyday glugger. <laughs> exactly. Your Monday wine, just two grand. Well, actually it's more like I think $2,000. So I mean, for us, maybe it's only 1,700. Oh, oh, well, there, there you go then, <laughs> depending on what the pound is doing. It's very exactly. reasonable. Uh-huh. <laughs> for what you get maybe you don't know <laughs> and then yes what is the price of going up to Romani yes. Conti so Romani Conti is a specific vineyard that Domain Romani Conti produce and they own the entire vineyard so it's about it's a little under two hectares in size they make around five to six thousand bottles of the wine per year and I looked it up last night on the internet the average price of a bottle of this is twenty one thousand one hundred and forty one pounds Boom. Yeah. You've got some work to do. I've got some work to do. Um, and obviously we'll, we'll come on in a second to talk about the wines that we sort of traded, I've traded so far, but uh-huh. there is a gaping a gap, a chasm between where I am now and, and where I'm, I'm trying to get to. I mean, 21,000 pounds is an average. So some of those wines are, are cheaper. I mean, there are bottles of these wines from kind of storied vintages that have been sold for much more than that going up into sort of six, six figures a bottle in some rare cases. I wrote down, because I thought it'd be fun for a wine fact. In 2018, apparently, they managed to smash the world record with two bottles of 1945. Now, this was a really difficult vintage and they only made 600 bottles that year. But this vintage, one of the bottles went for $558,000. And the other one went for $496,000 thousand (laughs) dollars i don't think you're going to be drinking that vintage the reality is as good as the wine is a a bottle of wine from 1945 is unlikely to taste that good unless it's been fortified really at the end of the day that's being purchased for the collecting Mm -hmm, the collection value of it right And, and 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 funny enough actually that 1945 vintage is widely forged oh yeah particularly some instances of jeroboam's of that vintage being sold at auction when none were produced in that size whatsoever. So who knows, maybe I can actually get a bargain. (laughs) You mean a fake one. And everyone, if you want to know much more about the stories of fake wine, there is Sour Grapes, which is an incredible film Mm -hmm. slash documentary. And I've even done an episode on fake wine. I'll put that in the show notes, the link to the fake wine and Rudy, the guy who, oh my God, did all of this. It's a very interesting episode. And Sour Grapes is an amazing film to watch just to know what's still out there that we need to be careful of. Yeah. I mean, for you Absolutely. and I, I mean, we're I mean, not spending yeah, money. I'm, I'm not really at risk of being defrauded at a Christie's wine auction anytime soon. <laughs> Sorry, that would be unfair. As Christie's would say that they um, they authenticate their bottles very carefully, and I'm sure that they do. Oh, that was a bit of a yeah. Um, we'll leave people. No, to- no, I'm, I'm 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 sure they do. But that that has there was a very famous incident in New York where some of Rudy's wines were on auction at I believe the auction house was called Ackerman, and the proprietor of Domaine Ponceau, 
actually flew to New York because he realized that these bottles were being forged and arrived at the auction house, I think on the, maybe the day or the day before the auction and said, we never made these wines in this vintage. They, um, they must be fake. So it does, it does happen. It still happens. But anyway, I'm, I am hoping, I'm very much hoping for it. You get a real one. An authentic bottle. Yeah, that would be, that would be ideal. So the plan is to get to the Romani Conti, the best one, but would you settle for the Richborg or an Echazo or Grand Echazo? <laughs> you know, any of the may, other maybe in, a, maybe in a few years time, if I'm not there yet, I, I would say yes. And I'll just have it so beaten out of me that I'll go, yeah, that's fine. I'll take it. But no, I'm, I'm aiming, I'm aiming for the top. I want to, I want to try the best Pinot Noir in the world. Okay, that's, I like that's that. That's what I want to try. And it's my only hope of ever trying it, realistically. Um, yeah, may, maybe, maybe. And they also, as well, when I only found out a little while ago, they actually have a white as well, one white. Yeah, Montrachet. Yeah, and they make literally two barrels, though. So I have no idea how much that costs. But yes, it's all about the peanut. But they I do think that's, have... that's, one, that's one of the relative, it's relatively inexpensive as it happens. And I love Chardonnay. Mm. So this is the tricky thing, you know, as, as I trade these wines, obviously I have to, I then have to trade that wine on. And you never get to taste it. I'm mm-hmm. never going to get to. So may, maybe at some point I will, I will get that wine. In your hands. And then I'll have to, and then I'll have to <gasps> put it away again. Okay, right. Let's talk about your journey so far, okay? And hopefully anyone listening, when we get to the end, if you've got something that's going to help take Sam on his journey, (laughs) get in touch. We'll be very interested. So you had your Yellowtail Shiraz. What was your first swap? So the first swap was tricky. Every trade that I've been doing, I've basically made a little video about the wine itself and, and why you should want it why it's interesting. So lots of people saying, oh, this is a great idea. This is fantastic. But unsurprisingly, very few people actually wanting to trade the wine. So that was a little tricky, but I did organize a swap and it was for a wine called Un Velo Pour Deux. So a, a bicycle for bicycle for two, bike for two. And it is a Van de France. So grapes coming from all across France, traditionally at the kind of lower quality end, although there's lots of producers doing really interesting things with it. And I think this is one of them. So the producer of the wine is Maison Bertrand Ravache. They're based in Saint-Emilion. They make a lot of Bordeaux wines. They're a big merchant. And this is sort of one of their Van de France wines. So it was a blend of Cabernet Franc and Grenache. Which is a really interesting blend, isn't it? That's not a red blend that you would see very often. Um, But that's what you can get from Van de France sometimes. They... The winemakers can do kind of what they want. And when you think about it, you have you have Grenache, which is this black grape variety that can be quite alcoholic and very, very fruity and quite broad, but maybe lacking a little bit of acidity. And then you've got Cabernet Franc, which is on the other end of the spectrum and has lovely acidity and really fresh flavors, but can be sometimes a little bit too herbaceous and green. I can kind of see why that, that makes sense. So I, I tried to find out exactly where these grapes come from. I am assuming the Cabernet Franc is from Bordeaux, and I'm assuming that the Grenache is from the south of France because you know, no one's growing Grenache in, in Bordeaux, at least yet anyway. And then blended together to make you know this sort of light-hearted, easygoing, relatively fresh style of wine. I mean, I would love to say I knew what it tasted like, but again, I haven't, I haven't tried it. And then moving <laughs> on, no, exactly. So you swapped that wine for what came next? So I swapped the next wine for two bottles of Hungarian wine. Hungary is a favorite wine country of mine, uh, not just the sweet wines, but also their dry wines, particularly their, their dry white wines. So I swapped it for two wines, a, a red called Egri um, Bikova, 
mm-hmm. which is Eggers, Eggers Bull's Blood is how it's I known. It. Great story. And then another another white wine called Ozzel Riesling. And the Bull's Blood in particular was really interesting to me. I mean, I, I kind of looked up, I, I always look at the, the value of these wines as I go and you know, neither was really sold in the UK and you get them in Hungary for about three pounds each kind of thing. Oh, wow. Yeah, but that's, that's a reflection of, you know, buying local wine in, in Hungary, I suppose. The Bull's Blood style of wine. So um, Egri, it comes, comes from Egger, which is sort of in the northeast of the country. It's quite, it's relatively close to, to the region of Tokai, which of course is the most famous region. And it's a blend mainly based on great variety they call Kick Frankosh and the Austrians who call Blau Frankish. And it's, it's big, it's powerful. It's usually quite alcoholic. The better examples are aged in oak to kind of round out the tannins. And this one was as well. And the story basically goes that when the Ottomans invaded the kind of the Balkans and Central Europe, they laid siege to the town of the city of Eger in the sort of 16th century. And the Ottoman sort of scouts were sort of looking at the, the castle and the fortifications and, and they spotted all of these Hungarian troops drinking this, uh, this red wine and their, their beards were stained and their eyes were bloodshot and... <laughs> And they, they went back to their commanders and they said, you know, we need to be careful here because they're, they're drinking the blood of the bull. And it's obviously made them sort of mad with a sort of war rage and all of this. I mean, ov- obviously it's not true. Yeah, but the worst, no, of course it's not true. The worst thing is, apart from the fact it's hilarious and apparently they actually retreated because they thought, oh my God, these Hungarians, they're filled with bull's blood and they're too strong for us. But apparently actual history suggests there was no red grapes planted in that area during the 16th century. Yes! (laughs) So this incredible story, apparently there wasn't even any red grapes. That's so sad. I know. I know. And it's often often the case of these things. It's an apocryphal story. It's wonderful. It's a great story. But I think it appeared in the the 18th, as in the 19th century during, you know, the height of nationalism and it's all part of, but it, it, it says a lot about Hungary in that part, you know, one of its kind of foundational myths is around wine and um, Hungary fun fact is as far as I know the only country in the world whose national anthem mentions wine like that fact well there you go including France France France's national anthem doesn't mention wine Hungary's does specifically Tokai which of course is the most famous but uh, yeah that says I think that says quite a lot about a country yeah no I love that and it, it, it's, it's to the country's credit and then the white wine was an Olas Riesling which is not Riesling everybody that's it's got nothing to do with the Riesling, but I imagine I know. that was probably quite. It's generally quite a crisp, fresh wine. It's yeah, it, exactly. Sort of fairly, fairly crisp, light, fresh, easygoing, and again, you know, not necessarily the world's most expensive, expensive, fancy wine. But I had two of them, which was fantastic. And then, so took those two and traded them on for a bottle of wine from Beaujolais. Yeah. And so this is from the crew of Julina, which I didn't know how to pronounce until I got this wine, because I had to double check. <laughs> I was always calling it Julinas. I mean, honestly, trying to pronounce French words. I mean, when I'm doing these podcasts, it's almost like, everyone, I'm so sorry. I'm just sorry. There's, show, there's the transcript. Just, you know, I'm trying my best. <laughs> I know. I mean, but it's been, it's been fun for that reason, because as I've been trading these wines, I've been learning more about them and the regions in order to kind of make the videos around them as well. So Julena, one of the 10 crews of Beaujolais. Funnily enough, I, I, like, I like this wine. I liked trading for this wine because one of the things that I say in class when we cover the region of Beaujolais. Historically, it has this bad reputation, a reputation for poor quality. 
but that has changed significantly because of how expensive its neighbor Burgundy has become, and specifically red Burgundy and its wines like DRC that are so emblematic of this. So that lots of young, promising winemakers have moved down south. A lot of investment has gone down into Beaujolais as well. And they've really championed these 10 villages. And the result has been a massive increase in the quality of, of wine that's been produced, even in the last you know 20 or so years. It was nice to have a wine that is, is, is kind of part of that wider story that I suppose I'm trying to tell about wine and these iconic wines that are now really quite far out of reach for, for most people. The producer is called Benjamin Passo, again, relatively small property, really focusing on the different crews. And, and he, he produces his wine from several different of the villages in the north of Beaujolais to make a wine that is much more serious and much more complex and thought provoking than you would probably expect if you are used to drinking your kind of Georges de Boeuf. Beaujolais Village, nice, easy drinking, alcoholic cherry juice. To be honest, it's really nice to have a play around with the crews. And especially if you find one producer and they have wines from different crews, because then that's, you know, Santa Mor, which is in the far north, is often, again, almost like the love. It's it's soft and it's fruity and, it, you know, it's it lovely red fruits and it's it's quite a little bit more, say, fun. But then Moulin Avant gets really serious and, and Morgan, yeah. again, is really big and bold and stuff like that. And so you can actually start well, what's my favourite? They're all very different, aren't they? But of course, still have that beautiful roundness and fruit. But yeah, a lot of them are getting a lot more serious. So shame you had to give that one up. I know, I know. And and the next one as well. So I took the Julina and I traded it for an English wine, which I was very excited to do because I'm a big fan of this winery. So this was the Arches, which is produced by an urban winery in London called Black Book. I talk about them a lot. I know they they just do great things with still wine and not always just Chardonnay and Pinot Noir. I like that they take things to different directions with different grape varieties. Yeah, absolutely. And you're right, because the, the winemaker um, Sergio is particularly focused on still wine. And I think he has really the right idea, which is basically that you, to make good quality English still wine, you basically need to age it for quite a significant amount of time ideally in barrels and ideally with lots and lots of lees contact because the thing that English still wine can sometimes lack is texture because if we're in a cool climate and we have less alcohol in our wines so how do you make up for that get it onto the lees make sure that it's got that nice not overwhelming but nice kind of bready character and then crucially that extra little bit of weight on the palate so this wine is a version of one that he made called the sea of love which is made from Pinot Blanc. So it's a special because it's, a special it, it's something I'd never seen before. And I thought, oh, yeah, I'm a big fan of these wines. Why have I never noticed this? So basically the guys at GB Wine Shippers had done a tasting with Black Book and Sergio and really enjoyed this barrel of the Sea of Love, the sort of you know, barrel sample. And they essentially purchased the barrel and Sergio kept it in the winery for another eight or nine months or so, essentially, or maybe even maybe even as much as an extra year before they bottled it. So it was this sort of limited edition kind of wine. Very interesting. Again, I'd never tried it and <laughs> I haven't because I had, to, I had to trade it on inevitably, but it was really nice to kind of get a little bit of an insight into these sort of special editions and how they happen. And it was literally just a conversation in a winery going, this barrel is amazing. Can we have it please? 
And they did, and they bottled it. And by all accounts, it's supposed to be lovely. And well, it comes from Karach Valley. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So 16 to 17 months in oak. But the thing that makes it really special is the fact that the grapes come from the Crouch Valley in Essex, which is the driest, supposedly the driest, sunniest part of, of the UK. That's what I've been led to believe. Absolutely. It's very exciting. Everyone check out that area. So you traded that and then got a little bit closer in location. In location, right? yeah. Mm-hmm. So this this was swapped for a wine, a winery also known often by its initials, PYCM, which is Pierre-Yves Colin Mori. And this is a sort of a husband and wife collaboration. So you've got Pierre-Yves, who is the son of Mark. I mean, I know it's not pronounced Colin, but is Colin correct? Mark Colin, uh, Mark Col- Colin. Col- Col- <laughs> I'm not helping uh, you here. <laughs> <laughs> he, he's the son of a very famous Burgundian producer. And, and Caroline Mori is the daughter of Jean-Marc Mori, who is another very famous Burgundian producer. So it's kind of this sort of wonder you know, dream team sort of combination, if you will. They're based in Chassin-Mont-Rocher, which is in that area to the south of uh, the Côte de Nuit, where we find Domaine de la Romney Conti, specializing in white wines. And this was their, just their Bourgogne, their sort of, I say regular standard Bourgogne, but already at this stage, and we're getting into wines that are not everyday drinkers. Mm. And they're such good producers. So even at their entry level, it's way above what is considered exactly. a Monday drinking wine. <laughs> exactly. And and actually, so the, the wine itself is a blend of grapes from the village of Saint-Aubin and Pouligny Morachet. So these two, well, Pouligny Morachet, much more famous than Saint-Aubin, but Saint-Aubin really has gained quite a, a good reputation for quality. And again, the idea of basically no expense fed winemaking, lots of barrel maturation, lots of time on the lees to produce something that is quite a bit more textured, and concentrated than you would expect from the rank that the wine has, which is a lowly, just a Bourgoin. And you can pick up a Bourgoin in a supermarket for what, you know, 12 pounds. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, maybe even 10 pounds kind of just at basic Bourgoin. Yeah. But yeah, not with this one. So sadly, you had to trade this. And <laughs> I have to say, the next wine I would absolutely love to get my hands on. Yes, yes. And I was really excited. And this was a this was a big dilemma because I had I had sort of three, I was getting more offers now. It was getting a little bit, funnily enough, when the wine began to get a little bit more expensive, yeah. people were interested in Of it. course. Mm-hmm. I had quite a few offers for the, the PYCM, I think because it has such a cult status. But the one that won out was a winery called Pegasus Bay, who are very far away from Burgundy, all the way on the South Island. And I'm a huge fan of Pegasus Bay and particularly their Riesling which you can buy for only about £25 and it's absolutely incredible. But this was one of their Pinot Noirs. So I liked the, uh, the fact that we were we were going to the grape variety that I hope to eventually get and taste with, with DRC. The cuvee in particular is called Prima Donna. So it's their kind of top, top wine. It's made from ungrafted vines, which are exceptionally rare. And perhaps the most exciting thing was the age. This is from 2012. You really do not see well-aged Kiwi wine in the UK all that often at all. And I basically I looked looked for this wine, tried to find it in the UK, and it just wasn't available, essentially. Wow. Oh, so sad that you passed this on. And actually, you've had their Prima Doma Pinot Noir in your hands, but even they do a standard Pinot Noir. And very often I see this in top 
you know, Pinots is considered often yeah. the very top Pinot of New Zealand in general, like even their more standard one is always getting attention. So to have their top, top cuvee <laughs> and hand that off. This is from Canterbury, everyone as well. So it's not from Marlborough or Martinborough or some of the other regions you might have heard, but Canterbury has some absolutely stunning Chardonnays and Pinots, don't they? It really, really does. And it again, it's, it's because Marlborough takes so much of the oxygen of publicity and to be fair, you know, it's obviously been a big role in, in making people awake to the fact that there is great wine in New Zealand in the first place. I think there is there is a slight tension in, I'm not sure they all go on perfectly fine, but there is sometimes a tension between the fact that Marlborough is so famous and such a great advertisement for New Zealand. New Zealand. And then mm-hmm. the idea that there's some really, there's so much diversity and so much quality beyond what we know as, as, as Marlborough, um, Savvy B. But yeah, it's it's it was really exciting as well. And there's there's the things I love about wine are, are when you have great stories. And I think that this winery has a lovely story from its name, Pegasus Bay, because the the part of Can they're just off the coast, off the Pegasus Bay, and it wasn't always called Pegasus Bay. It used to be called Cook's Mistake, which oh, is not a very catchy name not just for, a, for a bay. So Captain Cook. Obviously, sort of famous explorer and I mean, maybe pirates. I wasn't, these, these people are always quite morally dubious, but he had sailed around a lot of the coast of New Zealand and mapped it out. Off the coast of Canterbury, he made a mistake, which is that he saw, he was sort of sailing down the coast and he saw a bit of land off the coast. And they thought, right, that's an island. And then you've got some stretch of water and then you've got the coast. And he they sort of sailed on, must have sailed past it. Actually, what it was, it was, it was a very slightly submerged peninsula. Okay. So essentially, he put a map that said coast, water, island. But actually, it was coast, big sandbar, island. These maps were widely distributed. And in the 1800s, there was a whaling ship that was sailing through this bay and was using his map. And fortunately, they had come across the bay during the day and they got close to this supposed stretch of water that they could use. And they realized there was some land in front of them. (laughs) So they were able to sort of turn around and not run aground. And it became known as Cook's Mistake. Wow, okay. After this uh, this slight pathological error. Oops. But the ship was called the Pegasus. And so at some point... I don't know who made the decision to sort of change the slightly mean name, but it became known as Pegasus Bay. Love that. Oh, that's good. I love that. Now, enough of Pegasus Bay. You had to trade that in, but you came across to Bordeaux. So the last, are we still in Bordeaux? We are still in Bordeaux. Yes. Right. So we finish, we finish with Bordeaux. Okay. Yeah. So the next two wines are both from Bordeaux. The the wine that for which I traded the Pegasus Bay away was Chateau Leif. Again, another one that I've had to work on the pronunciation of. <laughs> Again, the thing that really got me about this wine was the sort of story behind it, and particularly the role of the sort of main proprietor, the owner, who is Jacques Thiempon. So the Thiempon family are a very famous group of family of Belgian, uh, originally Belgian wine merchants that have been involved in Bordeaux for a very long time. They're very important and they they own some of particularly the right bank's most iconic vineyards and principal among this, so vineyards, we're in Bordeaux. They, they own some of their most famous, some of the right bank's most famous chateau. 
but uh, principal among this is is Lupin, and <laughs> it is one of these absolutely iconic Pomerol producers. Wine. Mm, mm-hmm. Purchased in 1979, I believe, uh, fairly run down, fairly kind of anonymous, and uh, Jacques invested quite a lot of money into it and turned it into one of these icons of of Bordeaux. And Le If is his sort of latest project. So in neighboring Saint-Emilion, and again, the idea is basically the same. He purchased a fairly unknown, slightly unloved property and has put no expense, spared no expense rather in doing it up and particularly in, in the winemaking. And the idea is to produce really small quantities of very concentrated, age-worthy Merlot-based wines. Love it. And then you traded that to finish off with to your current situation with Chateau yeah, Montrose. Got it, got it right here. Hey, Chateau Montrose. Flash, I mean, you guys can't see this, but yeah, I, I have it in my hands. Second growth of Bordeaux. Second growth, yes. So over to the, on the other side of the river, on the other side of the Gironde, on the left bank, so into kind of Cabernet Sauvignon country. And the thing that interested me, I suppose, about this wine is the fact that in 1855, there was this classification of all of the very top vineyards and Chateau Montrose was kind of a new kid on the block because they'd only started bottling wine under their own name about 40 years before that, so in 1850. Okay. And, and they were sort of ranked as a, as a second growth. And particularly the 2005 vintage, which is one of them, oh, along with yes. sort of 2010, is known as as one of these very, very, very top vintages, mm-hmm. particularly for the left bank and particularly in areas like San Estefan. To have a wine that I know, if someone wanted to, to have it and keep it, would age incredibly well, was too much to pass up. So I couldn't, I couldn't avoid, I, could, I, you know, I couldn't help getting my hands on, on this wine. And again, it's, it's a wine that I've never tried. <laughs> and I would love to. Now, my understanding is that, so Chris, the guy who took Leaf, had sort of the last bottle that he had of this, um, tried at Christmas, and he said it was, it was too young. Wow. So it needs, it, it needs, it needs, needs more time. time. Love it. Needs it. more time. Right. Yeah. And that is your story that's, so that's far. That's where we are. Everyone well, needs to follow I you. Might, mm, oh. I'm, I might potentially be trading this for something later today, but I won't. I don't want to jinx it. Let's see. Let's see. All the I story will say is maybe we'll be heading back to Burgundy. To be continued. To be continued. So as I finish this podcast, I can confirm that Sam is actually currently on a Batade Montrachet Grand Cru, which is where you can find some of the best Chardonnays in Burgundy. So do follow Sam along on his journey or if you happen to be a collector yourself, perhaps in the London area and want to help him reach his goal of a DRC, you know what to do. And so to finish off, I have a wine quote. And it says, collecting wine is not just a passion. It's a lifelong pursuit of the extraordinary. Now, I don't know who said that, but I quite agree. Exploring the world of wine is an extraordinary adventure. And so join us next week 
as Sam helps us uncork the secrets of some of the wine regions to know about in the Languedoc, in the south of France. And I shall take this as a moment to segue over to giving special thanks, as always, to my sponsor of this series, Wickham's Wine, which incidentally, I was supposed to tell you what award they won with the Decanter Retailer Awards a few weeks ago. And I didn't because I want to say I was keeping you on your toes, but actually I forgot. So I'm pleased to say that they won Best Specialist Retailer for the South and Regional France. So hey, after next week's episode, you know exactly where to go and you can use the code EATSLEEP10 if you want to get 10% off of your first order. And don't forget, if you're enjoying the podcast, like, share, review, all of this is going to help the podcast become more discoverable. Now, as you sip your way through this week, may each glass give you its own extraordinary journey. I raise my glass to you, my wife friends. Until next week, cheers to you.